Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with architect and urban designer, Dr. Mitchell Joachim, a co-founder of the nonprofit firm Terraform One, which explores the socio-ecological future of cities. He is the co-author of the new book, Design with Life, Biotech, Architecture, and Resilient Cities, and also a professor of urban design and architecture at New York University. From worm-eating styrofoam incinerators to butterfly sanctuary double-skin facades, Mitch's firm's work contains radical visions for ecology's role in our future. And as someone who thinks deeply about where we are and where we're going, he's an especially compelling person to be speaking with right now. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Mitch. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us here today. Hey, Spencer. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. Or where I am and where you are, but together. <laughs> where, where are you? Uh, I'm in the Lower East Side in my apartment, hunkering mm. down because of, you know, COVID-19. Yeah. What's on the top of your mind this morning? Projects still going to work. So we're going into month four. So still working on uh, trying to save the world. Although... <laughs> Every day, <laughs> it seems like that bar is changing and the hurdles are getting much taller. And uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I'm wondering from your perspective as an architect and urbanist, how you're thinking about this pandemic. What, what do you think it's revealing? Yeah, it's definitely a problem to be an architect and an urban designer because cities are so important and have been so important, especially for the last half century or more. And there's so many of us that have moved into urban environments that we've developed this really intense and dense lifestyle around this kind of living. And now we're seeing the consequences of that, that something like a pandemic totally unravels everything we've developed for the last half century. And there's those of us that are sticking through Mm -hmm. with this kind of a system. We're, We're pushing and testing those limits and we're finding it to be problematic, not only problematic, potentially dangerous. So the model that we've been moving into for all this time is now switching over to something that looks more rural or suburban. And all of those theories that we've been touting are starting to change. And it's not like it's a big surprise. We've been aware that something like some kind of biological issue like a virus could create that change. Uh, But now we're, we're confronting it and it might be permanent. People are not going to forget this anytime soon. And when I mean people, I mean real estate folks, developer folks, certainly people in the leadership class, mayors, governors. We're looking for some level of transformation so humans can protect ourselves from the next wave. And I don't mean literally the next wave with COVID, but perhaps the next wave even 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So this really changes the base morphology on how we think about urban places. Hmm. And we are, we are now struggling to reorient those models because there's something beautiful about living in cities and it has to do with the environment. Hmm. You have all these folks together, we're sharing in our resources and that makes it greener, greener for the planet. Now we're gonna move to a different model. How can those models be green? Certain areas, neighborhoods, communities have been disproportionately affected by the crisis. How are you thinking about this in terms of urbanism and its future as we move out of this? Certain neighborhoods have been more affected than others, and I'm not an epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a field that's really going to do the calculus on why those neighborhoods were affected. And it might have nothing to do with their base geometry or the way that they've been master planned or the building stock 
in those areas. Mm -hmm. It might be perfectly fine. There might be a great balance between park space and habitat, et cetera. The reasons might be because of lack of vitamin D inside a certain class that's there. It could be an issue of uh, congregating one sort of race in an area, which is not good. We want to mix things as much as possible, and it's been difficult to do that in some neighborhoods. But it might be more of a genetic issue from human to human than it would be something that is planned as far as an architectural or, or urban planning issue. So until an epidemiologist comes in and gives us some of those facts, I couldn't really answer that. But even so, do we want to have that condition again? No. And do we need policies and a kind of a, a charter that allows us to uh, look at neighborhoods in a new way so that we can reinforce and protect ourselves from this problem in the future. So that's definitely true. And a lot of those things that we would do for those future neighborhoods are in alignment with environmental goals. Mm. So it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing at all. It's just a matter of that, uh, that shift and how soon that will happen. How is architecture needed in the emergence of this pandemic? You know, you, you've spoken about how there's this kind of opportunity because now more people understand how essential basic needs are. Yeah. So I was hoping to hear more from you about that. Architecture has a relevancy at all scales, especially during this pandemic. I mean, we're all stuck inside our homes. Yeah. The interiors of the places we live in, we are now confronting them directly. Mm. It used to be okay to be in a great city like New York and live in a box because the actual you know, encounters you had every day were in our streets in our cultural centers, institutions, educational areas, bars and clubs. I mean, it was vibrant living in New York. So I, most of us could care less that we eventually come home to a box. But when we're stuck in said box for three, four months, the cruelty starts to set in. Things like we just don't have access to fresh air mm. or the amount of daylight we want or even space to separate from your roommate if you have one or your loved one or your kids Imagine the architecture of being in a family with two, three kids in a small place in New York City. And I know a number of fellow faculty members at NYU, are they're stuck in that same situation. What was completely livable before is now impossible and cruel to the kids and to family life. So architecture on that scale needs to shift. More people are trying to escape to what you would think would be impossible places like Staten Island or the Bronx, the outskirts of Queens just because you're gonna get a better deal. Larger space with greater access to outdoors that are semi-private for you and your family. And these kinds of enclaves that are offered in those areas, not the kind of cookie cutter solutions we have uh, necessarily in Manhattan. So you're gonna see those shifts in architecture. It's also, we have been maximizing every square inch of space in the built environment in places like Manhattan. Closets are designed based on the exact dimensions of a hangar. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. And we've got a lot of stuff, especially, you know, during this pandemic, we it's just it's not going to fit. Where do you put your bicycle in a closet these days? And everyone needs something like a bike. So the amenities and all of the other kinds of things that uh, people can afford for a lot more money. Now, I think just the everyday citizen of New York is going to demand them as a must because they've been trapped in this this environment that's not acceptable. But that's by no means the end of, of where uh, architects would rethink cities. Certainly, we've had this initiative for some time through the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, was thinking of making cities healthier, encouraging people to use parks in a way where they can exercise more, walk more, 
Don't use the elevator. Use the staircase. Ways of getting outdoors for fresh air or doing your job on the go. Can you have more phone calls and less in-person meetings? And as you're walking, you're also working. I mean, there's been the movement against sitting. Mm. Sitting is the new smoking. So office environments. So this is now 10 years plus we've been saying this, but now it's we're almost desperate to get out of these chairs. Every day we've been doing Zoom and we can feel it, the gravity on our body, on our backs, especially those of us who are older. It's just not what we want. So things like standing desks or working on a Peloton bike, this is actually a good thing to do. And why not? So building health and wellness into every part of the physical environment is becoming more and more a need in architecture, just as much as like handicap accessibility and and other things. You were speaking just a bit before about the idea that we're going to feel the kind of resistance or the there's going to be certain issues about development moving forward because of the economic impact on developers and and other people who are in the leadership class of making our cities. Do you think ultimately that sustainable projects are going to be implemented because of this moment or there's going to be a pullback on that? Hmm. I think that what we've recognized now as a human race is that we are one biology. We may be maybe different in our backgrounds, our income class, our religions, certainly the color of our skin, but this thing is killing every single one of us, regardless of that. And if we don't recognize that we are one biology, that would be shame on us. But if we are one biology, we gotta pay attention to this one planet we're on that works on one contiguous ecosystem that is connected in a web of life. So if sustainability and climate change is not something you're realizing is all important, and that the next wave of those problems are coming down the pipe, you know, I, I feel really sorry for you. At this point, the United Nations has given us, what, less than eight years now to solve sustainability issues. And they tie into everything from world hunger to water resources to housing, ending poverty. These are things I, I feel passionate about. And uh, at this point, time's up. Put the pencils down. Let's get to the civilization 2.0. I would love to see that. And I think we absolutely need to see that. We can't continue to be on this economy that we have that's based on dead dinosaurs and systems that are long ago obsolete. We are fighting something that's still out there. That's something called predatory delay. I still think that will exist when it comes to fighting issues of sustainability. The reasons we won't do sustainable projects after COVID-19 is because We're going to have folks in something like, you know, the oil and gas business saying, we're great. We love solar panels. We love biomass. We love geothermal. We love wind energy. We really love it. You guys are great. Those are such promising inventions. Thank you for a library of workable engineered ideas that could help solve civilization. That's awesome. Do we need to do it today, though? Because every single day I'm in business, I'm making trillions of dollars in profit. So here's a little money. Here's a public presentation on why we support your idea. But let's not do it right away. Let's be very slow. Let's be slow in that transformation. And um, nope, that's not going to work. We've run out of time. Right. I think we need almost uh, the most aggressive possible shift at this point. And we we got to stop listening to those folks, you know, doing the predatory delay thing. That kind of mentality is, we, we don't have time to be that conservative on these issues. Mm. 
Your work revolves around biotech architecture and resilient cities. Could you help define these areas for us? Like, what is biotech architecture exactly? And how do you define the word resilient when it comes to cities? Yeah. So we've been using concrete, glass, and steel in architecture for a good century. Did a great job with that. We're finding out that concrete is something like at least 5 to 7% of the carbon loading in the atmosphere is coming from cement and the mining industries, the entire association with creating concrete as a high embodied energy material does last long, but it is not good for the planet in the long run, especially when we have something like 400 parts per million of uh, carbon in the atmosphere already. You can go to Bill McKibben and the Keeling Curve to find out that information. We can't continue to build just with concrete. Biotech is an unbelievably promising new area, much more promising than nanotech, which is also great, but we're not there yet. We're still 20 years out plus with some of the use or applications of those inventions. Biotech is thinking about a new order of architecture that is truly organic. Not your grandpa's version of organic architecture, which is Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank is good. He says it's organic and nature-based, but it's still concrete and steel, and it's decorative. It's biomimesis. It's copying ideas of nature in a decorative form, but by no means is it actually nature. So bio or synthetic bio-based architecture is taking bits of nature as they are already and nudging them Mm. to be used by people, certainly in things like housing or different types of spaces. We can alter them on a genetic level so they'll grow faster or be used faster or perform differently. But we actually don't have to. We've got so much of this stuff already available as they work normally in nature that I think we can look at them through this new filter of reason. So that's something like making homes out of semi-epiphytic woody plants or making insulation out of mycelium, making it out of mushrooms that you grow or thinking about a different type of material calculus and anything we approach that completely wipes out any kind of VOCs or any chemicals that will cause cancer, et cetera. So we can get to the thing that Bill McDonough was talking about, which is everything we do is vetted to be as green as possible, bonafide materials that can return directly back to the earth. Mm. Absolutely. And then materials that can't, such as systems that are technologically advanced, cell phones, computers, We keep them in very tight, closed, responsible and accountable loops where we don't don't go outside of that system. And we certainly don't design them to be obsolete. So that's also part of that uh, biotech system. Mm -hmm. And I've I've segue without really declaring it. That's a part of the resilience system, which is having things like Superman being stronger, able to take more and more hits. And not only can they take the hits those being things from some environmental context, but they learn from those hits and build so that the next wave that comes at them, they're even stronger. Mm. So resiliency and being self-reliant and self-sufficient, I think is, uh, is crucial. I mean, especially now. You don't want to have to be dependent on very fragile, weak points in a chain, like the meat industry. What's happened recently is the processing part failed. Mm. So we're able to do the raising of cattle and getting all the the elements that we need together, certainly also at the point of purchase in cities and the distribution and everything else is working. But where it failed, the weak point was in the processing plants because they were industrial in scale. They relied (laughs) on low-paid workers and all of them got sick. 
Just the name processing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's have them live happy lives, those chickens. Yeah. And just like in Portlandia, they should have little resumes of how great their life was before we <laughs> eat them in a restaurant. But maybe they don't grow up on the farm like they did in Portlandia. That was a little ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch, your work in some ways is sort of an extension of this conversation that's been going on for decades that goes back to experimental work with firms like Archigram and Super Studio in the 60s and 70s. How do you view this evolution from, say, Archigram and Super Studio to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, I love uh, Super Studio, Archigram. Everything they did was so inspirational. And uh, honestly, we're still in the shadow of their ideations. They were big thinkers in a time that needed big thinking. Mm -hmm. They were super influential as paper architects. They didn't build so much and it wasn't important. Instead, they changed our hearts and minds and they're in every single history book on the topic. They are heroes. Heroes. You know, what did they work on? I would argue that one of the big research questions was they worked on utopia. And if you say utopia, mm-hmm. like in any academic circle these days, there's, there's this aggression to just stamp you out, to kill it. Like stab utopia with a wooden stake and bury it <laughs> six feet underground. They just don't want to hear the idea of utopia. And my response to that is every single culture on this planet for thousands of years, at least, has been trying to get to some form of utopia. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean perfect place. It just means better place. And we should have the right to research that, to question it, to try and strive to get to a place that's better than what we have today. Utopia is probably one of the best questions we can ask, realizing that it's not supposed to be perfect. I find that as a product of Archigram and Super Studio and and so many others. Completely. And we need that exercise. I'll make an analogy. It's kind of like people, uh, they don't quite understand utopia because they think it's equivalent to going to a gym, paying whatever it costs to go to the gym, and that in a few months you're going to come out and look like Schwarzenegger or David Beckham. That's absurd. I love David Beckham, but there's no way I could be in the gym for years. I'm not going to look like that guy. I might get a similar body, but that's not the point. The point is, is actually to be healthy for yourself, to customize utopia and the needs for that community and its specific kinds of goals, to be in a good place, not some perfect ideal Mm. that doesn't fit. You can't build a mold to fit any particular group. No, because things are always changing. You talked about this idea of civilization 2.0. Yeah. What is that exactly? And how does it connect to utopia? Yeah. Civilization 2.0 to me is, comes from Paul Gilding and others. He was the former CEO of Greenpeace. It recognizes the earth is full. It's filled with our stuff. It's filled with our economic needs. We run under one single overriding predicate. That's our entire planet. And that predicate is growth growth with almost no consequence. We just, no one gets elected as a leader of either a group of people or a company or whatever, where they don't promise more stuff for shareholders, more jobs for the population they're responsible for, more resources extracted. We promise more growth. Civilization 2.0 is circuitous. It recognizes that we're going to probably move into a steady state economy. We're going to move into a system that is reflective of the kind of external costs of the things that we make actually produce. 
It's going to recognize that we are in this kind of one metabolic structure and that we need to think intelligently about all the different flows of systems and that nowhere on that chain is someone that is hurt the most or suffers for some other group to take advantage of that. I think Civilization 2.0 is a complete shift from our industrial attitude that we've had for a very long time. Capitalism growing without consequence. Still doesn't mean we can't have capitalism. It just means that markets can't and will not grow infinitely without some pressure valve. Mm. And we're, we're hitting that right now. And that's also in the housing stock. We need to make things for poor people and rich people that are absolutely built to the best possible capacity that we can make them. Mm. An architecture that is of enormous quality for rich and poor alike. I look at like David Ajay's Sugar Hill Project in Harlem. I'm like, why aren't there more of those? Exactly. More of those everywhere. Not something that it just follows like the bottom line and gets to the least common denominator and just makes people miserable. And in the long run, you'll see something like what happened to the Soviets. They rushed to produce bad housing that they thought they can figure later, and their entire economy collapsed, amongst many other reasons. That and a desire for Jordache jeans and <laughs> whatever else America was selling at the time. Brooke Shields, right? Brooke Shields took down the Soviets. Jordache. <laughs> but how, how can we find answers to some of the challenges in cities through biological processes? You know, I'm thinking of, of your recent um, proposal for the Petrosino Square building, that you know basically makes a building facade from a monarch butterfly habitat. Can you tell us a bit about that project and then on a larger scale, how you see biological processes in cities? Yeah, so the building that we're doing there in Lolita, we had a client that started off saying they wanted to do a green project. And we said, we're not just doing green projects. We're gonna do something that's super ecological and not just ecological, but socio-ecological. It's humans and plants and animals. So we might not be the right group for you because the things that we want to design are going to be designed for something that doesn't necessarily have a voice and doesn't pay rent. So uh, telling a developer we're interested in that usually scares 99% of them off. But they actually said, you know what? Tell us about it. And we started working on a project that was about saving a creature, a beautiful charismatic butterfly, the monarch, from oblivion, from extinction. So roughly we've lost 90 million of these guys in the last few years. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services are saying that they're endangered. Uh, they're native to New York. So these are, these are butterflies that belong to us. They, over generations, four generations, they go back and forth from New York to Mexico where they breed and come back here. So the idea that my daughters will never see these butterflies is absurd. Uh, it's sad, really. Actually, every seven minutes on another really scary statistic, we're losing another creature on this planet. That's every insect, coral, bird, mammal, gone. Gone forever, every seven minutes. If that doesn't scare the living crap out of you, I don't, I don't know what will. And it's deeply documented that this extinction rate is 10 times the normal background extinction rate. We're in the Anthropocene and we're recognizing that things are dying off. So where, where's the fight, the front line for something like this? It's in real estate and development. We're complicit. The places that we develop knocks out their habitat, knocks out all types of habitats. We have these monolithic green lawns that almost nothing can live on, or park spaces that have just a few species of trees and shrubs that are resilient for cities, but don't really provide biodiversity. So to increase biodiversity in cities, the best thing we can do. 
So we designed a building that just through the facade system, just through the atrium, all these pochet spaces that are sort of left over where nothing really happens in them, nothing is really programmed. We moved it over to create biotopes or these microhabitats for, in this case, butterflies to get a chance at life, get them a moment to, to survive New York City, provide them with their needs of their life cycle. That's areas for their caterpillar phase, laying eggs, their chrysilli phase, adult phase to propagate their species and to move in and out of that facade like a way station and rewild New York City once again. The system doesn't work if others don't do it. They don't plant pollinator gardens someplace or rethink habitats everywhere and put in biodiversity everywhere we can in buildings. But uh, it's a really big and important stab at this problem. Since then, we've gotten a project in L.A. with ODA architects doing something on Olive Street, a 70-story building that has a butterfly sanctuary. We're doing another project in Basel in Switzerland for also butterflies. In this case, it's, uh, they're all different species. But uh, we're working on butterflies because it's an insect we all like. Unfortunate, like all the little lizards and frogs, salamanders and tons of other bugs that people they don't like or care about, they just die. I mean, all of them, every single one of them. The last of its kind is known as an endling. This is insane. I don't even like talking about it. I just want to solve it. And I think that there's other reasons. Once you build in something like a butterfly sanctuary, it just becomes a more vibrant building. Mm. People look out, they see a garden of butterflies. It's awesome. And it's actually easier to sell the building from a the financial standpoint. You, usually you need something like, a I don't know, some kind of an amenity like Starbucks or a Rite Aid or a Chase Manhattan Bank. Wow, that does nothing for me uh, and for most people. Yeah, no, the moths and butterfly need your help yeah. uh, right now. So as we begin to get back to sort of business as usual, do you have thoughts or have you been having thoughts at Terraform One about how should we transform the public spaces within the urban environment? Yeah, Terraform One's been looking at that. I think one of the first things that's going to happen is really going to be in the software realm. And that's, that's outside of our purview. But uh, contact tracing and all the associated issues with identity and security, that's a point of contention, but it's almost a must at this point. We're not China. China was able to contain it because you didn't have a choice. Contact tracing just instantly happened. Yeah. Physical spaces where Terraform can make a difference. Yeah. Uh, there's already a ton of groups that uh, Arab. Uh, one of our partners is Ovarap, one of the biggest engineering firms that's out there. Maria Aylova, who is uh, co-founder of Terraform, is heads up the North American branch. So Arabs already produced these very practical and very realistic reports on how to continuously create social distancing in cities with uh, some very practical guidelines for restaurants, for you know meetings in parks, for how we walk on sidewalks, for integrating on streets. It's actually not that deep. We've been thinking about enhancements and we're wondering how long this is going to last because when this vaccine comes out under the supposition it will, this stuff then just goes away. Right. Yeah. So we want to build things that are a little more permanent and have lasting change. Hmm. Yeah. We're sort of imagining, is there going to be a lane of Fifth Avenue dedicated to walking now? You know, are are these things actually going to happen? Yeah. Well, that just should happen for other reasons. Definitely. Yeah. And closing streets and rethinking vehicle systems period. I mean, Terraform has been working on mobility for 15 plus years. Mm. I was doing that even earlier at the Smart Cities Group at the MIT Media Lab. We we were 
tasked with designing the car of the future, which we thought was a joke. Because <laughs> every five years, a car of the future comes out. And it's got big, sexy fins and some kind of blinking light. And, and you know, <laughs> we're slightly mystified, but then it's, we get bored of it very quickly. We actually didn't think the car of the future was a car at all. It was a system of movement, a system of movement that incorporated scooters and, you know, wheelchairs and blimps and every kind of thing you can imagine, certainly bicycles and certainly pedestrians. Like you're just moving in general needs to be solved, not just for a car. And we looked at on-demand systems, shared ownership models, uh, looked at a lot of things that have come true today, like uh, Uber and Lyft. Hmm. We had predicted those ideas and, and created very realistic narratives around them. That's the job that what Terraform does today. We actually are we're like science fiction writers. That's the best skill you can have. Imagine a future, a near future, in detail and describe it. Use a keyboard or a pen and paper. And then once people can read or see that visual somehow in their mind about what's life like when you have an on-demand vehicle system or busing that's completely transformed with that, they actually buy into it, especially the more popular narratives. Mm. That's how it works. My favorite writer, one of them, is Jules Verne. Jules Verne was a century or two ahead of his time. He imagined from Earth to the moon long before that technology was possible, and he didn't promise it. He never promised it. He just wrote a story in detail of how we'd get there. And that story, because of his writing, influenced thousands and thousands of minds to mm. go into aerospace, to be those kinds of engineers, so that when Kennedy said, hey, we're going to go to the moon, those people pulled out a plan. That plan was his book, verbatim. It was a staged rocket system that would have boosters that fall off, a capsule that comes out, lands on the moon, returns with a heat shield, deploys parachutes, picked up by the Navy, written a century before in Paris by Jules Verne. That was their idea. It was so convincing, it influenced how we did the engineering around the Apollo missions. Yeah. So architects can definitely do that, working side by side with people to, to imagine those, those near future possibilities of our cities and our neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's amazing watching ideas like Super Studio, Buckminster Fuller, like so many of these things that have come to life. At this time, we're living in a moment in which most people are really thinking just so by the second, by the minute, by the hour. They're not really thinking like super long term. And what you're kind of proposing and talking about here is this shift toward longer term thinking to imagining futures far away. How do you think we can shift culturally or societally to that kind of thinking? I got a couple of examples. One is Pearl Harbor. That was a moment in American history where, bam, stop arguing. We were attacked by a foreign power. What we did to Japanese Americans was wrong. But other than that, Congress stopped bickering. We, we aligned the entire United States, its infrastructure, all the industry, what people needed to do to fight that single effort. You know, this was the war effort. And we did that within a matter of months. We just got on board very quickly to transform our civilization into one that would defend us. People now are starting to feel that kind of similar Pearl Harbor moment. We are, it's percolating. We're very scared. What does it mean? And we need to look towards a kind of a template, kind of a graph of, of what we want to achieve. Right now it's, it's staying alive. But the next thing is, how do we restore this economy? And are we going to go back to the old system? And what, we, what do we really value? So these things are, are 
they're super real. Most of us have, haven't bought anything. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. We bought everything over Amazon, but we haven't gone into physical commercial spaces. So one's going to question that type of environment. Do we need retail like we are used to retail? I think there'll be an initial push of all of us immediately running into sneaker stores and we'll actually be buying them that way. And we'll think, do we really need to do this? And what is that doing for our economy? And how are these stores going to sell stuff again when so many of us have taken financial hits? Best Buy, I don't see us running into Best Buy and buying giant you know, flat screen TVs in the next four or five months. So they're going to slowly come back and we're going we're gonna to start to value things again and things that are not meant to be consumed. We're gonna think of our, ourselves as citizens of this planet, not consumers. We're gonna want objects that were probably made here, made really well and made with care. That's my thoughts. I, I think a Harley Davidson is a good example. Everyone who works for Harley Davidson takes an enormous amount of pride in their job. They're super expensive motorcycles, but they rock. And they're made in the United States. They're made locally, they're manufactured here. Imagine if you did that with your toothbrush, with your sneakers, your sofa. Imagine if people made those objects here. They're much more expensive, but you don't need to buy, buy a new couch every five years from Ikea because the thing crapped out on you. Or you make a pair of sneakers that uh, lasts, I don't know, 20 years. That becomes a family heirloom. Costs like a thousand bucks for that pair of sneakers because they're handmade by someone who cares in the United States and they're made extremely well. And then you don't need 50 pairs of shoes. Uh, and it's, it changes the economy. Uh, you know, it's not gonna happen overnight, but micromanufacturing and returning to that, the idea of a village where people in that village know what they do. They take a pride in the things they do. They have definitions in themselves and the artifacts they create is so important as humans. We've distanced ourselves from that for the last half century. It doesn't feel good anymore. It doesn't make any sense, especially with our relationship with China. Mm. It's upside down right now. And I don't know how these two powers are going to align ourselves again. But the idea we didn't have cloth masks in this country when anyone can make cloth masks in the beginning of this pandemic is, it was a big sign. That and automation is pretty scary. A lot of these jobs that we're doing, those jobs are going to be replaced by automated systems, especially in transportation. Andrew Yang is right. So what are these people going to do if they don't have those kinds of jobs? Plus, in my opinion, which is a little bit not so acceptable to some folks, I don't think anyone on this planet should have a job. No one wants a job. You want to have a career. You want to have a life. You want to do something that you care about. You wake up every morning with a sense of purpose and passion. Not a job. A job is I just, I'm just doing this for the money to pay my rent. That's not a fair existence. Mm. So I think we're probably going to see, I don't know when that time frame is, but somewhat immediate. People are going to not want that anymore. And it's not right for anybody to have that. It's just not fair, especially if, for their kids growing up and doing that same thing. It's, it's not fair. So let's, uh, let's try and organize society where we don't have to do that. That might mean for a period, you got a lot of people that just stay at home and live off the government. Fair enough. But uh, I think a lot of us will be involved in the community. We'll be involved in education. We'll be firemen, be volunteers, helping. Yeah. Social workers. Social workers. Yeah. yeah. Doing things that you want to do. As we move forward and as this next generation comes up, as we come out of this pandemic, what, what's your greatest hope? What are you most excited about? 
Well, for us at Terraform, we're, we've worked on a modular system that's sort of a plug and play system to build biodiversity, to increase biodiversity in urban areas. Hmm. So right now, we, we've, we've always seen a lot of traction in that, but we're, we want to do that more of that kind of work. I think people will just want that connection to nature more than ever. And it's, it gets difficult to do because there's so much of the built landscape where it's not easily applicable. You have to carve out big voids of spaces to do that. But what if you could tack it onto the sides of buildings or in atriums or small courtyards or, you know, rooftops, balconies? There's so many transition points in the built environment where we can actually think about biodiversity locally that uh, we want to be involved in that as a essential project to help build up Civilization 2.0. So we're, we're definitely excited about something like that. And then Anything else that starts uh, taking down the old system, we're into. Certainly uh, getting New York City into an electrical vehicle fleet full on. Yep. We've been involved with that kind of work. I would love to see New York City go fully electric now, as soon as possible. And a different kind of car, a car that cares about people on streets, not giant SUVs that have no place to park and that roll over children, not all the time or purposely, but this is the vehicle that was not designed for cities. We need things that are smaller, lighter, move at 30 miles or less per hour, and that fit inside our cities and that are shared by others that are soft and that are electric-based. I don't see that happening immediately, but I would love to get that underway, in part because rolling it out is many, many questions. Who's riding in them? What do you do with the folks from New Jersey, Connecticut, the whole tri-state area issue? And how does the city start creating charging stations and who uses them and what access point? There's still lots of questions, but we've been working on those scenarios in detail. Mm. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to talk with you about terraforming a new reality. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Andrew. And I really enjoyed being part of this program. And I think what you guys are doing are amazing. So anytime you need uh, to talk more about visionary concepts, you can call on me. I'll do my best to produce some visions. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mitch. Take care. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.